whether it was an afterthought or an emotional outburst, what Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20 is surely one of the most amazing summaries of the Christian faith ever written. After stating that he had died to the law, that he might live for God, that he had, in effect, given up trying to earn his way into God's favor and finally accepted the way of grace, Paul wrote these words. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. If there's a single sentence that summarizes the Christian life, this is it. So if there is one sentence we really need to understand, surely this is it. The words themselves aren't all that hard to understand. But plumbing the depths of their meaning has kept theologians busy for centuries. And I assure you, we're not going to exhaust their meaning today. In fact, all we're going to do is briefly look at three phrases Paul used to describe his relationship with Christ. Crucified with Christ. Christ lives in me. And I live by faith. You know, if we can get a handle on those three concepts, we will have come a long way toward understanding Paul's relationship with Christ and hopefully ours as well. We begin with a simple statement of profound meaning. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, obviously, Paul is not claiming that he had been physically crucified with Christ, that he had actually been on the cross with Jesus. What he is saying is that he so strongly identified with the death of Christ that he could actually envision himself on that cross with him, that he had, in fact, spiritually joined himself to Christ on the cross and had died there with him. Now, that sounds amazing. But lest you assume this kind of spiritual experience is reserved only for apostles and great men of faith, let me remind you of what Paul wrote in Romans 6, 3 through 6. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We have been buried with him through baptism into death. Now, we speak of the watery grave of baptism. And baptism does entail closing our eyes, holding our breath, and going under the water like being lowered 
into a grave. But there's more to it than mere symbolism. Somehow, in baptism, if done biblically and with the right motives, God allows us to participate in the death of Jesus. He allows us to be crucified with Jesus. So our sins are paid for on the cross. He takes something that happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago and turns it into a life-altering personal experience for us today. And we demonstrate that fact by not only spiritually sharing in the death of Christ, but by dying to self in the process as well. That means in baptism, we actually experience two deaths. By faith, we experience Christ's death with him. And by a changed life, we die to self. The first death is theological in nature. It's something God does for us. The second death is personal in nature. It's something we do for God. Now, I really don't understand how God does what he does in baptism, allowing us to share in the death of his son. And the only way we know it happens is that he says it does. So I take it on faith. And I leave that aspect of my being crucified with Christ in God's hands. It's that second death to which I have to apply myself. To die to self means to quit living for self. It means to give up what I want so I'm free to do what God wants. Now, obviously, that's easier said than done. If all Christians were really dead to self, conflicts between brothers would be non-existent. We wouldn't fight for our rights or seek to have our way, and no one would try to make a name for himself because self would no longer exist. So why isn't that the universal experience of the church? Does it mean that our baptisms are invalid and that we never really did bury self? It's possible. And that's why we should all examine our heart and make certain our commitment to Christ and his lordship over us is for real. But failure to live a truly crucified life is not necessarily an indication that our faith is a sham. Because self has a funny way of coming back to life, even after its death and burial. It's not like a physical death. You know, once it's dead, it's dead. The death of the will is a temporary thing. And Satan knows how to perform CPR on it. In fact, self has more lives than a proverbial cat. And it constantly wants to pop its head out of the grave and climb down off the cross. And that's why Jesus said we have to take up our cross daily. We must continually remind ourselves that we have been crucified with Christ. That we willingly decided to die to what we want so we could live for what God wants. That we crucified self so Christ could live in us. And that brings us to the second 
phrase. Christ lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. When we died to self, we were inhabited by someone else. We were inhabited by the Spirit of God. Through death, our old sinful, rebellious self was taken from our heart, and God's Spirit moved in to begin a new life in and through us. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to have Christ living in us. That's what it means to be a Christian, to have Christ within And that means that Christianity is much more than an ancient religion that remembers something that happened a long time ago. Obviously, we do remember what Christ did for us. That's the foundation of our faith. Christianity is more than a religious memory. It is yielding to a present reality. To the Scriptures. We've come to understand that the risen Christ is now present on earth in the form of his Holy Spirit. And that through his Spirit, he wants to live his life through us. And when we became Christians, we said, yes, you can. You can live your life through me. And when Jesus took on flesh 2,000 years ago, he let us see what it looks like for Christ To live in the flesh. He showed us how to live. He showed us how to treat people. He showed us how to talk to the Father. And he showed us how to die. So we could live forever. And now he wants to live that life. Through us. Through us individually and collectively. Through the church. And we said he could. When we accepted him as Lord of our life and allowed him to cleanse us so he could inhabit us and begin living his life through us. That's what it means to have Jesus in our heart. It doesn't mean we have a warm fuzzy for Jesus. It means we recognize he's in charge. That we have given him the reins of our life. And said to him, do whatever you want through me. I am yours, body and soul. And he said, okay. I'll cleanse your soul and I will inhabit your body. I will make your body into the temple of my spirit. And that's exactly what he does. If we have invited him in, our body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we must not only recognize that fact, we must treat it as such. Paul emphasized that in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. He said, do you not know that you are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Your body is a temple. And contrary to what our culture might want us to think, that doesn't mean we should strive to have a body that others will worship. 
Our body is God's temple. We gave it to Him, and His Spirit now lives within it. It no longer belongs to us. Paul made this shockingly clear in the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians, while warning us about the sin of immorality. He said, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. That's an amazing text. We need to be living that and sharing that, especially with young people in a sex-saturated society. Our bodies are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Christ died to be able to cleanse us and to live through us. And we said he could when we became Christians. He doesn't, however, just take over like demons who might possess us and say, ah, now I've got you. No, he simply says, okay, I'll come in. I'll make your body the temple of my spirit, but I'm still not going to force my way upon you. You're going to have to continue to choose to let me live my life through you. And that, I think, is the point Paul makes in that third key phrase of Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. There's a lot of confusion today about what it means to live by faith. To some, it means hoping something is true or not true just because you want it to be true or not to be true. It's basically living in denial of reality. You know what the doctor or your banker said, but you don't want to believe it, so you have faith that they're wrong or that a new drug will be discovered or that you'll win the lottery. Or if you're religious, you have faith that God will make the problem go away or miraculously fix it. And if you'll just believe it, he'll do it. Neither example is what Paul means by living by faith. He's not suggesting that he lived by believing the unbelievable or by forcing the hand of God. That the key to his success was conjuring up enough faith to do the impossible. Or to get God to do what he wanted. Paul didn't have faith in faith. In the power of faith itself to change things. He had faith in the Son of God who loved him and delivered himself up for him. You know, faith in and of itself is of little or no value. It's nothing more than a state of mind. 
It's looking at life through the eyes of Pollyanna. Faith only has real value when it's placed in something or someone of proven faithfulness. Something or someone who can be trusted, trusted to do what you have faith they can and will do. You know, I can have faith that my car will stop when I put on the brakes. And it will. As long as they are in good working order, and the tires are good, and there's no ice on the road. And I'm not expecting them to do something beyond their capability, like stopping a car going 70 miles an hour in 10 feet. There are limits to what brakes can do. And all the faith in the world won't make them do more than they can do. There are limits to what a doctor or repairman or a counselor can do. But Paul put his faith in the Son of God. So can't we assume that the Son of God, by definition, can do anything? Well, it may sound heretical, but no, he can't. There are some things even the Son of God cannot do. He cannot act in a way that is inconsistent with his character and divine nature. He cannot violate his Father's will. And he couldn't save us without dying for us. In fact, there is any number of things he and even God the Father cannot do. Due to limitations he has placed upon himself. And all the faith in the world won't force him to do what he can't allow himself to do. Or to do something he chooses not to do because he hasn't promised to do it. If he hasn't said he will do something, having faith that he will borders on presumption. And God's hand will not be forced by our expectations. But we do have a right to assume he will act in keeping with his character. And like Paul, we know the Son of God loves us and delivered himself up for us. We know his will for us is good and acceptable and perfect. And we trust him to do for us that which will prove to be the most loving thing to do. In the long run, if not in the immediate circumstance. Faith in the Son of God, who loves us and proved it by giving himself up for us, means that we know we can trust him. We have confidence in him. Living by faith is trusting in such of God. It's not finding a way to control the circumstances of life. It's not finding a way to control God. Living by faith is ultimately surrendering to a God who loves us and has proven his love for us by dying for us.
we understand that and do that, we can honestly say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. If you've not been crucified with Christ, I certainly encourage you to join with him in a watery grave of Christian baptism. If you are not now allowing Christ to live his life through you, I plead with you to put self back on the cross and let his spirit resume control. And if you're not living by faith, I remind you that you can trust the Son of God who loves you and who has delivered himself up for you. If you'll surrender to him and stay surrendered to him, you can know the joy of living by faith, even in a faithless world. Let's stand.